Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Welcome to another edition of The Way with Anoa. Just really wanted to hop on real quick and give a brief um, update to this episode. I recently talked with Syra Rao, an uh, activist based in Colorado and also former Democratic candidate for Congress. Um, Syra's done a lot of talking and writing about not only her experiences as a brown woman within the Democratic Party, but you know, issues about anti-racism work and internalized white supremacy and some of the challenges she has faced. And in her recent, you know, conversations and work, she's also looking at anti-blackness even when within, you know, so-called people of color spaces, which I really appreciate the work that Syra has been doing and engaging in. You can find uh, quite a few of her articles linked in the description of this episode, as well as the article that we're discussing uh, most recently, this whole concept of of you're not being nice or we're only acceptable as Black, Indigenous, POC women in these spaces, BIPOC in these spaces, if we're nice, if we're sticking to whatever the tone of the conversation is. Because once we push or change it, we're divisive. If we're not falling in line, we're, we're somehow wrong. And the reluctance of our generally white counterparts, not always only white, but our generally white counterparts in being push to do better, this demand to do better, this request for us to build better spaces collectively to actually take down and deal with these issues. It's not enough that we're, quote unquote, on the same side when it comes to whatever particular issue. But when we see these moments where people who are bold and brave and willing to stand on the issues are maligned, as we're seeing right now with Representative Ilhan Omar, there's a deeper problem and requires all of us to stand strong, whether it's quote unquote, our issue or not, because this is how we build better process. This is how we build accountability into our system. And this is how we keep the valiant fighters that we send in. This is how we keep them fortified, supported, and from burning out or for, for, for being silent or trending to the other side. We want folks who are going to stand up on issues, who are going to be bold and, and, and valuable and, and, and not back down and fearless, but we need to stand with them. And I know Rep. Ilhan Omar has, Representative Omar has a video where she's like, you know, she says in this video that um, Representative Rashida Tlaib texts her like, do you, I just want to come hug you. Do you need anything? And she's like, girl, nah, I've been in war. <laughs> like, I survived war. That is a mood. I have not survived what Representative Ilhan Omar has survived, but but growing up as a black woman with the number of stressors and stuff that are put upon us, how we are curtailed and boxed in and limited by society and by even those who are quote unquote on our side. While I don't know her particular experience about literally surviving war, I do as a black woman, and I know several of my sister friends have expressed similar things. I feel like we are constantly at war in every space we are in, except for when we have moments alone as sisters. 
I feel like we are at war so often, even in the spaces, whether we're talking about progressive, Democrats, liberals, whatever, in the spaces that are supposed to be, quote unquote, for us, but the people supposedly on our side, I feel like we are at war constantly. We are at war with those on the right who would rather we be quiet or not exist at all, right? They just want to run the show the way they want to run the show and who cares what the rest of us think. I feel like when we have to fight, whether it's for funding, whether it's for work, for access, for platform, to just exist, for the freedom to thrive, shout out to my girl, Tracy Corder and Jessica Addis- Epps Addison and the Center for Popular Democracy and all the amazing work that's being done right now. I mean, the BYP, there's so many other groups convening today and there is a session that's going on that just warms my heart. Um, and I just thought about freedom to thrive, so I have my little segue, forgive me, y'all. But... We have a very real obligation and duty to not just simply quote Angela Davis, right? But we literally do have a duty to fight for our freedom. We literally do have a duty to stand in solidarity with those who are putting themselves on the front lines day after day. We have nothing to lose but our chains. But that is not just simply that we lose our chains only on the terms of a select few and in terms of what is what affects their sensibilities, We need to be willing to dismantle, to deal with these issues. And yes, there's a lot of internalized white supremacy and decolonization that needs to happen in our spaces. And so that's the conversation I have, I start having with Syra. And then the second part of this episode leads to a session that I did with Tracy Corder, who I just mentioned from Center for Popular Democracy. Um, We were at Roots Camp at the beginning of December 2018, and we talked through about our our session was about dismantling white supremacy and, and progressive and leftist spaces. And this is a conversation, as we've both said, that comes from a place of love, not because we're trying to demonize and tear people down, but these are very real issues. And just because you can point to black friends or black academics or whomever who don't have this issue, who don't engage in the world this way, doesn't mean that it's still not a very real phenomena that many of us are experiencing and struggling through, not against, we're struggling through it because we're trying to build. And quite honestly, y'all don't want us taking all of our sweat, equity, equity, emotional labor, and love out of these spaces because you already know we, we we sprinkle we sprinkle sunshine and rainbows and glitter and we turn all this shit into gold. You already know we do. So it's better to build and work with us and work through these difficult moments to make all of this better and listen to learn and not just simply listen to respond instead of doubling down in spaces of fragility and only pointing to those voices that make you feel nice and comfortable and okay with yourself. We have all had moments where we've had to listen to learn and understand instead of listening to respond. And I'm a master debater. If y'all catching me on Twitter, you know what I'm saying? I'm in moot court mode. But when we sit down in conversation in an interpersonal where I get pulled aside by a comrade or somebody wants to work on a project we really do need to create these spaces where we are understanding that we bring to our work, even with the best of intentions, no matter how wonderful you think your praxis and understanding is, there are so, there are ways that we are socialized because of the nature of the way this country has been since its inception. And we have to have honest looks at how do we de- decolonize not just our minds, the way we've been socialized, but our actual movement spaces and how we do work. So that is the conversation that Tracy and I have. I know this is a little bit of a longer episode. Please hang in there. If you got to pause and come back to it, come back, like, share, subscribe. If you haven't already, hit up the Patreon. 
it is hard being a one woman show, single mama out here doing it all. But I am trying really hard, y'all, to bring y'all good conversations with good people doing good work. Patreon.com slash The Way With Anoa. If you got suggestions, helpful suggestions for how to improve, definitely hit your girl up on email. But I appreciate you all so much. Here we are with the episode. I stand with Ilhan. Peace. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another amazing edition of The Way With Anoa. I am always excited because when I get to do an episode, because I always talk to really cool people who are doing amazing work, who I think you all should also hear from. Now, some might say, well, Anoa, isn't it good to have different opinions and ideas? And yes, that's absolutely true. And you know, there's some of that sometimes, but you also have plenty of sources out there that will give you that. I like to list up voices of people um, in work that we're not necessarily hearing about elsewhere. That's not necessarily the case with this person, but I do think that it's very necessary that we make sure that we have space and dialogue for women, particularly women of color, um, to, 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 to be the leaders in, in, in holding space for each other, as well as directing conversation about the space, this movement moment we're all in, and how we should be engaged in it and what our experience is. So I'm really, really excited to have one, to have connected with this woman, but then two, to be able to become sister friends across the interwebs like many of us have, but then also to be able to share space and have conversations like the one we're going to have today. So I am delighted to talk to former congressional candidate Zyra Rell from Colorado. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be on. I am so excited to talk to you. Not just, and it's, and it's so wild because, you know, like I have fangirls for a while, um, you had a piece previously about, you know, being a brown woman uh, breaking up with the Democratic Party, and you talked through several different pieces about your own experience within the Democratic Party, your experience running for office, and and it's just so honest and raw, and, and, it, and people think that this is divisive or mean or you're just lashing out, but I can tell that it really is also a place of love because you actually care about people in the space that you're talking about, and it's resonated so much with me. I'm like, this is how I feel talking about <laughs> the faces we have. Like, oh my God, she's she's writing what's on my heart right now. Oh, it's that's so awesome. That's and awesome. Now, this, this latest piece, because you, you've written several different, you know, articles, and we can get more into your background and, you know, all that in a second, but like, this latest piece was really like, I was just like, I need to um, you know, reach out and ask the interviewer, uh, when being an opponent of white supremacy means not being not nice. And the title itself just struck me. I was like, oh, that's a mood. Because, <laughs> you know, everyone's fine when the white supremacy is, you know, this new wave of Nazis or, or the alt-right or, you know, punching fascists. Like, everyone's okay when that's the white supremacy we are fixing mm-hmm. it on. If it's Trump, they're okay with that. But when we start talking about the internalized issues within our common spaces, oh, you're not being nice. Right. Being divisive. Why right. are we talking about that? Right. So I love this. <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 it was it was when I actually first saw it. We have have a couple different chat groups. One of them is a group of women that we we all got to know each other around the Stacey Abrams campaign, and it's majority white. And so my nice white ladies in the group were sharing this like, oh, this is so good. Did you read this? Oh, you got to uh-huh. this in that other group. And I was just like, 
So she's talking. You're like she's talking about you. But, 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 but so the good thing was, there are these were the women who recognized. Them. Yeah, good, that, good, good, good. That's what, that's what was exciting to me. Yeah, and I was like, oh, I gotta go read this because if they excited about it, it has to be like if they are like. You know, because these are, they're the ones who are trying to help their sisters come along, right? Like, yeah. everyone's recognizing, like, we have to do this work. So, um, so tell me about, so just talk to us a little bit about, you know, just, just talk to us a little bit about yourself and your background. You just ran for Congress last sure. year. I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, like you said, my name is Syra. I'm a first-generation daughter of Indian immigrants. I was born and raised in Richmond, Virginia, as you know, the capital of the Confederacy. I was born a um, little over a century after slavery, quote, ended. And um, it was a very interesting, uh, you know, it was an interesting place for me to grow up. I spent um, all of my, I went to the University of Virginia after that, and then I spent a big chunk of my adult life in New York City before moving to Colorado about seven years ago. And something that struck me, you know, having kind of lived in, you know, the South and New York City and Denver now, is that the racism is the same in all three places. It just presents a little bit differently. And just like the Democrats like to point their fingers at the Republicans and Nazis and Donald Trump and the KKK um, as being the racists, and the liberals like to point their fingers at the conservatives, so too the entire country likes to point their finger at the South and say, you know what, the South is racist and the rest of us, we're all good. And what I'm trying to do now is like what you just what you sort of touched on is I don't think we get anywhere until we all recognize our complicity and where we live on the ecosystem of white supremacy. So what does that mean for me as being an Indian American woman? It means that I am the recipient of racism and I am also anti-black. And I am anti-black because um as as we all know, Asians are born and raised to be anti-black, and that is all part and parcel of the, you know, hierarchy created by white men to keep everyone in their place. And so, you know, what's interesting is I'll say, you know, the, the piece I wrote before, the one you talked about, is about coming for my Asians, and, and, and we got to all acknowledge our anti-blackness, and if we don't, then we can't dismantle it. I can't tell you, Anoa, how many Asian people have reached out to me, and they're like, speak for yourself. You know, we're not. And I just said, as an institution, yes, you are. You you are. It was it's completely created. And so my goal is to get folks to start acknowledging their own complicity so we can start dismantling it. And um, it has been very difficult because it has made a lot of people very upset and very fragile and a lot of tears and a lot of anger. And, um, you know, when, when you elicit that kind of response, I think you know you've hit a nerve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right in terms of how we need to figure out the ways in which we engage in particular spaces in our own um, complicitness. This is a conversation I've had with mm-hmm. those folks, too, because we talk about white supremacy. We talk about, you know, dismantling it. But even, you know, black, indigenous, POC folks, like even all of us can still play a role in maintaining it, um, even when specifically dealing with anti-blackness. Like, like, like it does have to be something that needs to be pointed out, and it's painful. Right? It is. I mean, that's when folks talking about the discomfort. Like, it is painful having to admit the ways in which, not because, like, it's physical, not, not usually physical people, but because we have these ideas of ourselves, particularly as progressives or liberals, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. People believe that they're good people. Mm-hmm. I don't see color. 
or mm-hmm. I have black friends, mm-hmm. or, you know, I believe in Black Lives Matter, or right. I support immigrants' rights, or whatever. Right. So I'm not a bad person. I'm not that thing you're saying. Right. When we really start looking at the way in which white supremacy is able to to, to, to not just be fostered and grow, but the way it's maintained and the way right. it has been systemically embedded in all of our institutions. Yes, yes, right? just, yes. Just simply upholding the status quo is, in fact, upholding white supremacy. Yeah. Um, I, know yes. the, 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 I know the verbiage is jarring for folks, but I think, you know, we have to just rip the mandate off. And, and that's right. And so I've started um, – Dinners, me and my, my partner and friend, um, Regina Jackson, she's a black woman. I'm an Indian American woman and we started doing dinners that we're calling race to dinner with, um, six to ten white women where they can come in and say and ask whatever they want and we can be brutally honest and the only rule is if they start crying or get super angry, they have to leave the room. And it has been fascinating because it really all those things you just said i'm not racist not all white women you know not me um at these dinners like it's we call it white women bingo they say it all you know it's like uh and and i start the dinner by saying i am part of the i am part of the problem and part of the solution and i am anti-black and i can say that what we need you to do um at the end of the dinner is be able to say i am racist and they basically fall out of their seats when when we say that, and um, that's it. That's the work, and 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 it doesn't mean that you're bad. It means that you're American, and it means that you're human. And this false binary of you know racism bad, non-racism good, has completely derailed the conversation on race. And by derailing the conversation on race, you ensure that racism survives. And so it's this it's this silence that we're trying to break through. And um, it has been very hard. But really interesting because we're seeing a little change at the edges. So there have been some women who um, have come to the dinners and, you know, have cried, have done all of it. You know, like, you need to apologize to so-and-so and stop lying and I'm not this. And I, the best was, I'm not racist. I, I volunteered for Hillary Clinton. And both Regina and I were like, what? That doesn't even make any sense. Um, but, you know, we're seeing some changes. And there have been women who have freaked out at these dinners and have – you know, have subsequently reached out to us and um, have, like, you know, they're they're continuing to do the work, and and that's all that we can hope for. Yeah, I think, and I get why someone, I get why it makes sense for someone to say, I voted for Hillary, because we've had this very polarizing conversation around Donald Trump and those who supported Trump, particularly the 53% of white women who supported Trump, right? So they're one of they're in the good category, right? It's that same you're 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 you're, right. you're you're taking away their goodness from them, right? Right. right. Conversation, but but you know some folks are saying like you know some folks are saying say to us this is divisive. We have so much other things that we have to work on. Part of the problem is that we're not able to get to the real work we need to. We're not right. necessarily always able to support the best candidate in the right. because there are these things, these barriers, these institutional you know barriers that exist. And really, these psychological barriers that exist to right. allowing people to go ahead and support people. When we have folks saying things like, "Oh, well, you know, we got to understand that certain people are just uncomfortable supporting, you know, particular candidates," it's like, no, they're perfectly fine supporting racists or people who use racism and, and intimidation and threats of violence to run for office. Like, that's not that's that's not acceptable. We shouldn't be dismissing that. We we have to confront, you know, the 
the old way of making excuses for right. otherwise not white people. Um, right. I want to get into your piece a little bit. Sure. When, yep. When, when what what brought you to this to doing this? Um, yeah. Yeah. About the uh, about the about being not nice. Yes. So I would say that for me um, over the years. That's the thing that, you know, that's where they start, and by they, I mean li- super liberal white women. Start by, that's that's sort of step one. You're, Sire, be nicer. You're not being nice. I don't like your tone. I'm sure you've heard this before, I know yourself. Like, you're misconstruing. Be nice, be nice, be nice. And, you know, all women are taught to be nice, and white women weaponize that against us, just like they weaponize it against each other, and white men weaponize it against them. So they come by it honestly. But... What I wanted to be clear with that is what they mean by just be nice. And people, oh, my favorite is lots, like, they, and by the way, they always tattle on each other. So it always comes back to me, right? So one of them will, will tell, call me and just be like, so and so and so and so said this. And, and a lot of people just think that you're not being very nice. And what that means is I have strayed out of my lane. And my lane is to push the status quo and talk about my kids and talk about their activities and talk about meaningless things. And, and by the way, we're all allowed to talk about Donald Trump because he's the bad guy, right? But, like, God forbid I implicate any of them because that's when you stop, you stop being nice. So it has, the word nice is truly – it's just – I keep using the word weaponized. It's been weaponized against those of us, predominantly brown and black women – talking about racism in liberal spaces. And, um, you know, I just, I'm done. Like, I, I want I want it to be, like, all of these women to be on notice to stop using that word nice because we know what it means. It means you want us to shut the fuck up and no thank you. I'm not going to do that. And, and, and tr- come up with a different, a more clever way of saying what you're trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I really appreciate that because it's, it's, it's true. You're not nice or, you know, somehow I've had, I've had, I've been told my words are violence. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I of course. I've my words are violence when the person was actually being hostile and, in in, 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 antagonizing me. <laughs> right. And I right. was the one being violent. But yeah, and it, and it plays on my dad actually. He's just like, what is this trope? People are talking about tropes these days. I was like, what, racist tropes, Dad? And he was like, yeah, what, what, what is all this? Uh-huh. Uh, we were just having a conversation recently about it, and my daughter was like, well, Poppy, it's, but it is something. It's like it's like people, whether they know they're well-versed in them, they're well-versed in them. Oh, totally. In the wrong way, right? They're totally. They're well-versed in them because they know how to apply them and use them and to, to accuse us of stuff. Yeah. But they're not they're not that woke and aware that they're using something that is actually a racist stereotype. Exactly. Right? So they're that's exactly right. And the and yeah. the not nice is sort of step one and then step two is divisive and step three is angry and you got somehow you got this person to go to step four violent, you know? It's uh they try and they try and they try. It's all silencing. And um again, you know you're saying something that matters if they're trying to silence you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So where do you see this going, the work that you've been doing so far? And and I know we, you and I have talked, um, this is our first time doing an interview, but this is certainly not our first time 
having, uh-huh. you know, we talked about the personal toll it has been on you to be able to take this stand and own your truth. Where do you see, you know, where do you see this going, this work that you're building out in this space and, the, and, and, and how you're uplifting and supporting work? That's a great question. And so, you know, having run for Congress, I'll tell you the talk about violent um, white women coming to me, putting their hands on me, screaming at my small children, telling me I'm a liar, uh, telling me that I'm angry. One of my favorites was a, a white lady. She said, you know, you're really articulate. And I was like, oh, Lord, you're really articulate, Syra, but, um, you know, you're also very angry. And I said, I'm just going to give you a free tip here. Like, you know, there's a long history of white people calling brown and black women angry. Just pick a different adjective. And she said, I can say whatever I want. My daughter's Indian. Quote. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't, that doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. Um, and so it was just, it was just so awful. In, in those ways, but I also, it was also the greatest experience in many, in many respects. Um, I don't think at the moment for me, electoral politics, uh, are in, in the cards for 2020. In fact, I just got off the phone. I did an interview with, uh, Denver media outlet who was calling to ask me if I was gonna challenge Diana to get again and right now, and the answer is no. Because I think that we need, we're, we're, all of this, you know, it's politics is one silo. There's the media, you know, the mainstream media, social media, academia, um, science, and each one of these institutions are super racist. I work in publishing. I can attest to that. Hollywood, every year we have the hashtag Oscars so white. What that tells me is we have a major cultural problem. We have a problem in our cultural DNA that electoral politics are not going to fix. And so in the, in the immediate future, um, you know, I posted about these dinners two weeks ago and it's hundreds, hundreds of people have reached out to Regina and I around the country, some in Mexico as well saying, you know, we would love to have the dinners here. So we're actually going to do that. We're, we're going to, you know, create a business and figure out a way for brown and black women to actually conduct these dinners or it could be race to lunch. It can be race to cocktails, race to coffee, whatever. Um, but kind of create a toolkit for black and brown women to be able to have these conversations with white women in their own communities. And I think right now that's probably the best, the best, uh, use of my time because like I said, we're starting to see a little change around the edges because, you know, a lot of times when you look at these arguments that happen, um, in digital spaces, people rightfully shut down, they shut down their Facebook account, they block people. And, um, or if you're at a lecture, you can get up and walk out. What's happened in these cases is these white women will get really angry and really upset, but they stay because there's something really unnatural for a white woman to get up and storm out and leave a dinner party. So they stay, and they stay till the end, and they sit in an incredibly uncomfortable situation, and then a fraction of them stick with the work afterwards. And that's all we can hope for, right? Like personal change, personal interaction, little by little, and over time, we have to assume that there's going to be cultural change, change in our DNA, so we're not still having these same conversations that we've been having for decades. You know, like, I, I'm telling you, I don't see any change from my time in Richmond, Virginia in the 70s and 80s to super liberal, um, Denver, and I put that in quotes, Denver, Colorado in 2018 and 2019, and we got to do, I mean, you've got two kids too, and you know, we've got to do what we can to make sure it's different for them and for, for our grandkids and our great-grandkids, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely agree. Um, and, 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 and I appreciate 
the, 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 the recognition. There's like so many spaces to build out, right? Right. And we have, I mean, you, Denver, you guys have an amazing candidate running for mayor, Lisa. Um, you got a lot of work and other stuff going on in, in, in various places and stuff like that. I've heard good things about just different work, different people, uh, on the ground locally. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're talking about like, is it for me right now to run? That is like such an involved level of leadership that I don't know that people understand. Cause not everyone has to run just because they have the ideas, just because they're a good candidate, right? Not saying you shouldn't run because if you, if you, you are those things, but, like, it's also a level, level of leadership to not run and instead build out space that helps, you know, do better across multiple issues and how we're actually doing the business of organizing, building, and making life better for everyone. Like, that's a different lane. And I definitely appreciate, you know, that you, you, you expressing the value in that because everyone thinks that they have to be at the forefront, you know, in these one or two particular ways to be leading or to be impacting change. Yeah. And, and, and the way that you're doing it, I mean, having these conversations, conversations and, and being able to have the tough conversations right. that nobody really, we don't want to have them because we don't necessarily want to have to deal with the white dinners. Right. <laughs> right. Labor, we don't want to have to deal with either. They don't right. want to have them because they don't want to deal with their tears because it's difficult for them when that is. Right. I think it's a brilliant, and I, they're actually, this is this totally off the cuff from our interview, but there are actually some women here that I would definitely love to connect you with who are, who are trying to flush through what does a similar type of thing. It's a, it's a mixed group of women, diverse group of women, and, and they're very conscientious and really at the early stages of thinking through that. So I'd love to connect y'all. Great. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, but, and, and, but, and that's but, what you just. definitely in the right moment, the right time to be doing this because it is necessary. It's necessary, and and the thing that I find to be very gratifying is, you know, someone posted on Facebook the other day, a white woman had asked her if she finds joy in this anti-racism work, and um, I guess, like, I had to sit with that for a minute because it was it's an interesting question. Some people took great offense, which I understand because it hit me in a certain way, and I realized the joy that I find in the work is from the Many, many, many brown and black, um, not just young women, but women, my own middle-aged women and older women who have reached out to me and said, thank you for doing this because now I feel like I can do this too. And I've been doing this too. So that's, that's what's gratifying is we, is, is we have our voice, right? Um, but it just feeling like, okay, if she can do it, I can do it. You know, if she can say that, I can say that. And, and that's, that's what I'm grateful for. And if we can all, feel, you know, empowered to use our voice, that's when we start having change. And it is not safe, and I'll say that right now, you know that, it is not safe for brown and black women to talk about um, racism and misogyny in liberal white spaces. It's not. And we have to flip the script so it's safe for, again, our daughters and our sons and so on and so forth. And I believe if, if, if we change that, if we empower young, you know, brown and black women to say what they need to say, we change the world. We actually change, or at least we change America. Because it's, it's right now people are scared and, and rightly so. I mean, it's, it's not easy to do, um, or it's not easy to feel comfortable enough to, to say things out loud because Look at, I mean, look at what just happened to Ilhan Omar. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, we have some really concrete examples of what happens. 
And um, it's terrifying. And what's the message there, you know? And and look at the media. I mean, I, don't even get me started on the media. Look at what the media is doing over this Jesse Smollett quote story. Mm-hmm. It is disgusting. Mm-hmm. It is disgusting. It has dominated every single thing. Meanwhile, we have a white nationalist terrorist with stockpiled weapons and God knows what else. I, I had to dig. I had to dig to find that story. And frankly, I found yeah. it because my friend Shereen Mitchell, who is someone everybody should be following right now, it's a brilliant black woman out of D.C., who is owning the story on the Russian bots, but she's the one who, like, dug up the story and sent it to me. Where is the story? And why is Jesse Smollett the story? And we're all supposed to now suddenly try, I don't know, like the Chicago PD. I, it, the whole thing makes me sick. And I'll tell you what, my two small kids came home from school, and we don't have, you know, we, there's no CNN on in our house, and they didn't hear it here. They, they said that all anyone at school is talking about is this Jesse Smollett thing. And so history repeats itself. So we have to break that cycle. Mm-hmm. No, you, you. I think in terms of the way in which media shifts narratives, and this is why getting to the independent media, this is why getting out there, doing the writing, really having these conversations, figuring out how we can best chip away so the, the, the control that, you know, corporatized major media does have with the fixation they have on particular stories and not on others. You're right. I mean, I remember, because now what's coming up, a lot of people remember when Ryan Lochte, the, the, oh, the, the Olympic swimmer, you yeah. know, lied in Brazil about being robbed at gunpoint uh-huh. at the uh, gas station. Uh-huh. And I remember at the time that that happened, us having a discussion with folks about how how that particular, what he did, not saying, you know, one is better than the other with these two incidences, but, you know, he did a press conference, had to say, I'm sorry, and, I mean, yeah, it happened in another country, but still, that could have been an international incident, right? Like, that could have been something that actually led to, particularly when you have events like the Olympics and stuff and the slum clearance, you know, that was happening and the the heavy-handed police tactics on poor, predominantly black people in Brazil anyway, that could have been something that could have got folks killed, right? Of course. Like, of course. Things in context, and you're absolutely right, I myself and others said, you know, what's happening with the Jesse Smollett situation, not getting into a whole lot of it, don't really care to talk about it. If if this is, in fact, what honestly has happened, it's a very unfortunate turn of events, but that don't mean the Chicago Police Department is suddenly our friends and they're suddenly okay. Like, the Chicago Police Department has decades of history and experience of being absolutely the worst, and we're not yep. about to let them yep. reach their image yep. because of this one incident, right? Yep. But that, yep. That's bigger takeaway for me. Yeah. But... But, like you said, the fact that the news media, there's, that there was someone that had, it was a, a, uh, there was a credible threat to people. And uh, actually, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had a tweet about this that, you know, at the same time as there was a report of someone threatening to kill people, including herself, you know, there were people, there were news stories actually being run about, like, where she was living. And, oh yeah, and, and, yeah, and yeah, the yeah. Risk that they that, that they put us in with yeah. no real concern or second thought to what they're doing or what they're putting out there. So when we're thinking about like having these conversations with people, helping folks get have a new level of critical thinking and understanding about these issues, about how they are, you know, affecting us. I am nowhere near on the same level as AOC since she's become a national figure, yeah, yeah. race and all the other stuff. But at the same time, you you and I. 
doing the work that we do, and, and because people don't like us, you, you can very easily, when you're involved in politics, you can very easily find people's personal information. Yep. It's unfortunate yep. because of filings and things like that. Yep. It's very unfortunate that that's the case. Like I get I get the transparency and I get why it's the thing, but it's very important. To, and a lot of us can't afford, like, P.O. boxes or other addresses. Totally, but I, wanna, I just want to say one thing, though. Like, yeah. And, and with these death threats that happen all the time, like, again, fingers pointed, Breitbart, Nazis, KKK. Yes. But yes. how does this happen? So let's, take, let's just revisit um, Representative Maxine Waters. When she said last year, you know, it's now time for us to start harassing all of Donald Trump's cabinet members, Chuck Schumer and now everybody's, you know, patron saint of liberalism, Nancy Pelosi, threw her under the bus. They threw her under the bus. They called her un-American and unacceptable. They called her words un-American and unacceptable when what they should have had was her back. Instead, mm-hmm. they put a target on her back. Those death threats became so vicious, and Representative Waters, like, almost never cancels events. She had to cancel events. So yeah. let's talk about why you know, brown and black women are put in these positions. Again, it's not just because of the Nazis. And yeah. and back to the media, you know, we use words like, you know, narratives and pushing narratives. I want to be very clear and say it very clearly. The mainstream news media has created and upholded white supremacy in the same way the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, Fox News, the KKK, the Nazis have, in the same way. So today, you know, we heard about Loudoun County, Virginia, not far from where I grew up in Richmond, an elementary school in, in quote, honor of Black History Month, had kids reenact the Underground Railroad and had a black student play the role of a slave. Okay? Like, it's... And then I think in the media, like, in one of the news stories I, I read, they called it culturally insensitive or something. No, that's not culturally insensitive. That is white supremacy. And by calling it something that it's not is also white supremacy. So we, I, I just feel like it's so incumbent on all of us to understand what is happening and how we are being manipulated every single second of every day. And we have to be vigilant and start, you know, frankly, Kudos to Robin DeAngelo for writing White Fragility. I think it's a very important book. But White mm-hmm. Fragility is white supremacy. White mm-hmm. privilege is white supremacy. Let's stop. You know, misogyny is hatred of women. We have all these words that, frankly, have, like, lost meaning when the reality is much bleaker than what it would, you know, those words would signify. Right. Right. No, absolutely. And yeah, shout out to Dr. Robin D'Angelo. It's definitely my go-to. I love to drop some people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's an important work. It is an important work. And, and I also appreciate that she recognizes that even someone like herself still has to, it's an ongoing thing, right? It's never ending. Like, you know, um, Audre Lorde said, uh, revolution is not a one-time event. It's the same thing with all of us. This, this work and deep digging, it's not a one-time thing that suddenly you arrive to the space and it's like, oh, I'm white. Right. 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 Totally. Totally. So there is so so there is just so much going on. Just just talk a little bit. How do you balance? You know, because you have you have kids and family like I do. How do you balance all this very intense, deep, you know, social movement, political work that you've been engaged in? And then also the family and, and, and really just maintaining a sense of you outside of this. Not very well. And my daughter, who is 
2010, essentially staged an intervention in early December where she said to me, you know, Mom, uh, it makes, she said it makes you really sad to see you so angry and sad all the time. And it was really, uh, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know. And um, I actually, like, took myself off of social media for a month, and we, t- we took a family trip to India. It was the first time my husband and I took our kids to India, and it was a total reset for me. Um, on many levels, I hadn't been to India in 13 years, but something that struck me while I was there, again, is like, this is, this is white supremacy across time and space. India was one of the richest countries in the world. British came in, took over, and, and literally, you know, created famine, poverty like you just can't even believe. Um, and, you know, the colorism you see there, the internalized racism, uh, the the Muslim Hindu violence that the British completely exacerbated to have you know to maintain their own white hegemony. Uh, it just really struck me like look this is a long game and it's been going on for a long time and I tried having conversations with um, folks in India about you know people live in houses and you look across the street and there's slums there's slums without running water and you know it's 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 third world and and I would say like and by the way created by the British. And I would say, like, do you not see, like, how how is it that you can live like this? And they literally wouldn't even respond to me. Like, just silent. It, it's the silence. And so I'm just, I came back more resolved than ever. Conversations, we have to have these conversations. We have to have these conversations in real life as well as online. But we have all been silenced globally and throughout time to be silent about the oppressor. And the oppressor is white supremacy. And I sincerely believe, you know, I can't tell you how many people when I was running for for office, just, you know, keep talking about class. Keep talking about class. Stop talking about race. And I would say some of the most hideous, uh, you know, uh, that capitalism has caused, like some of the most hideous things that capitalism has caused, white supremacy is the tent. And you bring down the tent and all these other oppressions become, you know, chopped off at the knees completely. Um, capitalism is upheld by white supremacy. And why do you think we can talk about class? Why do you think Bernie Sanders is such a hit? We can talk about class until we're blue in the face because the real devil, the real enemy is white supremacy. And there's a reason that, like, the, the head honcho of socialism, Bernie Sanders, doesn't ever talk about white supremacy. There's a reason behind that. And we need to get to that reason and we need to start talking about it so we can dismantle it. Well, you don't get me in trouble with all the people who already don't like me for demanding a discussion to dismantle it in this space. Um, and I keep telling folks, like, it is, it is a necessary thing because we have to build better. And you can't keep expecting me to show up as my full present self in a space that doesn't recognize nor respect me completely as I am. So I absolutely (laughs) – Hillary Hillary Clinton called black teenagers super predators, and I'm sure you saw the video of that young black girl challenging her at that house in South Carolina, and she got super fragile and completely belittled the the black teenage girl. So I'm sorry, how is – So there was that moment, but then there was also, I don't know if you remember, in Minnesota, a young woman walked up to her machine getting coffee, and she was like, why don't you run for something? Fun fact, that young woman was actually working for Ilhan Omar, who was then at the time running for her state seat. Uh-huh. Um, so, so yeah, so it happened. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was quite, there was, there were quite a bit, like, 2016, yeah. I'm sure all of the, the, the candidates 
running right now, you know, Hillary's not running, but quite a few of her, you know, staff are working with other candidates. Yeah. I really hope everyone has gone back and watched these, these, these different encounters and videos and are really learning how to have these difficult conversations because it's necessary. And if and you were willing to, if you were willing yeah. to bet your life on whether or not that's happening, what would you say? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I mean, what I'm saying, but but if anyone really, really, because honestly, for being really honest, looking at what happened in 2016, regardless of what anyone thinks about what contributed, what influenced, whatever, this country, this an election was lost to a subhuman thing. Basically, I'm not mm-hmm. even like I'm not even gonna pretend and have you know cute little euphemisms like Donald Trump is such a snake. And if you even look back and guess he been playing people from years and would go in and out and everyone tolerated him because he had cool parties and threw around money, that's the problem that's egg on a lot of people's faces. However, we had half the nation check out. Right. And we need to figure out how is it that we build and engage with people because those are the voters we need back in the system to make sure that the Donald does not get around trip ticket back to the seat he currently has. Right. And so my hope is that folks would look at and consider yeah. them, but you're probably right, they're probably not going to. But that is my hope. One, a girl can only dream. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 you know, I'll end with this, which was which continues to be one of the most powerful um, experiences during my campaign. I was going door to door, and um, there was an old black lady, she must have been in her 90s, out in her yard, and I went over and she shooed me away, and she said, I don't, you know, I don't talk to politicians or candidates, I don't vote. And I said, can I just have a few minutes of your time? So we ended up chatting for a little bit. And, you know, I went in and basically spoke the way I just have, you know, with you. And she said, you know what, you're the first person who's come by here to talk to me and actually is talking about racism. And she said, you'll be my first vote in decades and you'll probably be my last because I'm probably going to drop dead (laughs) in the next week or two. And I thought to myself, that's how so many people of color feel. I mean, really, and, and poor people of all colors, because look, we've been the richest country for a long time. Why don't we have, why don't we have good public education for all? Why don't we have universal health care? I mean, why don't we have a clean dream act? Why do, why do we have money to fund genocide around the world? We have money to cage brown kids at our border and to separate families, but we don't have money for health care. For whom? Who do we not have money for health care for? You know the answer to that. Why have people stopped voting? There's a reason. Because they don't trust anyone. They don't trust anyone because they have been screwed by everybody. So we have to do better. And we can't do better unless we have better candidates. And nobody, the institutions, the establishments are not supporting the better candidates. They're supporting themselves and they're supporting their pocketbooks. That's what's happening. And so it's, it, you know, it's hard to convince people to get out and vote. Uh, tons of voting, voter shaming has been going on. You don't need to shame people into voting. You need to inspire people into voting, and you inspire people to vote by being honest about how you're going to actually help them. You, that's a whole mood. That's it. <laughs> you said so much right there, but it's so true, and and, you know, from my own experience, knocking on doors and getting out there and talking to folks, like I've shared with folks, one of my brothers had never voted before. He's 30. He had never voted. He's now right. doing some really, really deep, amazing work 
around voting rights and access and stuff like that, but like he had never, he got an opportunity through some organizers I know, but he had never voted before. But because of Stacey Abrams and the work she was doing, he was like, yo, this is real, we gotta get out here. But that's what happens when you actually go and talk to people and connect with people and, 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 and help them understand not just something that they need to vote for you, but that you're building collectively to make something better, right? Yep. And, and and that's yep. what we need to see from everyone, whether they're running for president, all the way down to, like, yes. school board, dog, dog catcher, yep. that type of thing. Yep. So, and and, thing, and, and I'll just say this last final thing. That's also why I'm somewhat wary of people who run for thing after thing after thing after thing because there's different ways to, to achieve this. And, again, I'm not convinced um, – that electoral politics is the end-all, be-all. I mean, there's there's a, a bunch of different things, right? And we have to have all hands on on not just deck for for electoral politics. We have to have all hands on decks, all on on every different boat, you know, in the world. And there are lots of decks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Agreed. And I keep telling everyone, 2020, yes, presidential election cycle is really, really important. At the same time, 2019 is not just a staging ground for 2020. We have local elections happening. Yep. In all over the place. Amazing spaces all yep. over the place. And local elections literally happen every single year. Yep. There is no off cycle when you think municipal and county, y'all. Right. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. I really so, appreciate it. So you. great being on. And you guys don't understand how dope she is. My daughter decided at the last day of she needed a ride to go have brunch with her girls on a Friday because they're out of school in the senior year. Uh-huh. But anyway, she didn't tell me this. And then so I was like, oh, my God. And so she's looking at me. She's looking at all the patients. She's like, I never hang out with my friends because they're all, you know, they're all crazy seniors. Right, Wait right. Into college. And so thank you so much for your No worries. Time. I decided to share that. Like, you are totally – Totally chill, totally cool about it. So thank you. I really appreciate it. I haven't been I haven't been called chill in a long time, so thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But no, I'm joking. But anyway, thank you so much. Thanks. You guys share the episode. If you go check out Syra online, do not harass her, but you know, be there and friendly engaged because I hate I hate if anybody who follows me goes and follows other people I admire and they start being annoying. That that really hurts my feelings, y'all. So don't, be, be kind in, in your engagement. Appreciate you so much. Have a great day. Awesome. Take care. Shalicia, I go by Jam. Uh, she, they are my gender pronoun. I am an organizer, but I'm moonlight as a data scientist, and I'm based out of Florida. You moonlight. Hey. I feel like I will always be an organizer no matter what titles I hold. <laughs> I got that. Uh, Chris Lord, I was the 4th Congressional, uh, ran for the 4th Congressional District and executive for the U.S. House of Representatives, so that's how I kind of got started with everything, and so, yeah. Thank you Just for trying running. to learn as much, learn as much Thank as Thank you so can. much for running. That's a, kudos to you. Y'all I ran people. my campaign myself. Mm. Me, myself, and I. I was the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> and I got three to one for my return on my money spent. I spent like $3,400, and I got three times the votes. There you go. I was proud. You should, <laughs> you should be. Yeah. So, I'm considering doing it again. So. Let's talk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hi. I am Candace. I'm senior organizer at Color of Change Pack. Um, she and her hers. Anything else that she said? All right, cool. My name is Will O'Neill. I work with Communications Workers of America. We're a labor union. We represent folks who work in telecommunications and a whole bunch of other stuff, and I'd prefer he, him. You represent me. Oh. 
I have some family members who are CWD members, so kudos. Awesome. Oh, awesome. Awesome. My name is Anoa Changa. She, her, hers. I'm based in Atlanta. I do a little bit of a few different things. Uh, organizer. I'm also a podcaster. I'm streaming. Hi, everybody, if you're watching when we're streaming. Um, so, yeah. So, we're going to, uh, if you're watching me on the Twitter or you're watching later on, Tracy Porter and I are here at Net, uh, Netroots. Ooh. We're at Roots Camp. I don't know if they want you and me at Netroots again together, but we're <laughs> at Roots Camp 2018, and we're talking about confronting white supremacy in progressive spaces. And this is a conversation from a loving place, right? Mm -hmm. um, because we want our spaces to be as impactful and productive as possible for all of us to be able to build and thrive in. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to just talk, go through, I think, some functions, some definitions of white supremacy. Um, we're going to really like dig into them. And then we're going to have some conversations about what we talked about and how that shows up in spaces. And at the end, what we want to do is commit some things to each other for how to confront in the future. Like, I, I don't want it to be like, man, the movement is real racist. And then we leave. I want to figure out how we can work together um, and make some commitments to each other. So um, the first thing when we're thinking about like what are what are ten like aspects of white supremacy? The first is white supremacy is a complex social phenomenon. I mean, it's not so often we think of white supremacy as like you know white hoods with pointed hats, right, or David Duke or whoever. But there is actually a more complex, socially ingrained like phenomenon process to it that un that permeates throughout everything that exists in our current society. Um, white supremacy is comprised of habits, actions, and beliefs. Um, so it's not just enough to say, um, I believe that white people are better than black people. I believe, like, it's not just that. I mean, that's a part of it, but it's also in your actions, it's in your habits. And I think habits is an important word because that means that it's something that we all do daily. Like, so divesting from white supremacy means that we also have to do that daily and we have to make that a habit. So images of organizations like the KKK um, are outlier characters of racism from our, that exist still in the post-civil rights era. So again, we think of the images that we have that are generally representative of white supremacy as these, you know, it's the, it's the, the, the fire hosing, the, you know, scenes from lynchings from the Old South, or, you know, scenes from, you know, uh, uh, police brutality and race riots from the early 1900s. Like, that's what we think of only. We don't necessarily think of the other images that we see in the legacy of hypersegregation in the North, um, you know, issues with, with which, which translates to housing and school and even employment centers. So there are these other ways that actually manifest, but it's not represented in the images we actually see. Um, and I just want to also add, I think that a lot of times now that we hear we have the election of Trump, we hear, I can't believe this is happening in 2016, 2017, 2018, 20, whatever. And what we've seen is that this has been happening for a really long time. Um, and so it's not, it happened kind of in these characters, but it's also been happening in other smaller ways that people have talked about. And so now we're seeing a resurgence of it and people are actually feeling it and seeing it on TV and we're sharing it in a way that we haven't shared it before. So I think it is important to remember that this is like, it's like a loop, right? You know, we talk about like lynchings and now we have a, a, a candidate or a senator from Mississippi who said, I would go to a public lynching, right? Like those things come back around. Right. Um, the other thing is that racism and prejudice are not the same thing. I know that that sometimes is controversial, uh, but, but racism is prejudice plus power. So I can easily say I don't like short people, 
But like, what does that really mean? Do I have the power to oppress people? And so that is what racism is, right? Like it's the prejudice, it's this belief, it's this dislike, it's this thing I hold, this view I hold, plus having the power to actually change someone's life or or change the the trajectory of their life, impact their freedom to thrive. If I have that power, that is what racism is. And, and that power is not an individual thing necessarily, right? Like that power is like something that's built into, you know, systemic institutional settings that multiple people over a larger range are all benefiting from. So you don't necessarily have to be someone who has a direct position of power yet because there are certain characteristics that have been predetermined that folks are just, just happy to belong to, that that power, that collective entity that exists is something that perpetuates that system. So white supremacy is an evolving political project. Um, Just as our democracy is evolving, um, so has our, the way white supremacy has showed itself in our political system. Um, And we look at, I mean, just, I'm from Georgia, so we look at the recent election. I mean, we had everything ranging from outright white nationalists threatening, threatening a black woman who was running for the highest office in the state to just people who voted for someone who was okay with that type of behavior happening. Like even though that's a spectrum of behavior, it's, it's, it's a representation of just how much this is involved in our political setting. Shout out to Nsa who is the executive director of New Georgia Project. Um, and one of the things that she said during the election that I kind of laughed at was like, we're no longer dealing with Jim Crow, we're dealing with James Crow, comma, Esquire, right? Like, <laughs> he has evolved, and so like, we are not, maybe, we maybe aren't doing um, like poll tests, but what we are doing is we make people wait two and a half hours in their line yeah. to early vote. So like, these things evolve because, because we, as we are evolving, white supremacy has to evolve to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing is that um, white supremacy works on both an institutional and an interpersonal level, right? So one of the things we hear all the time is people are like, I have a black friend. And we sometimes laugh about that, sometimes we don't. But the, the, the point is, you can have as many friends as you want, but like, what does that mean for how we're addressing systems of oppression? Um, are we able to like move our interpersonal relationships to understanding what is happening in the world. It's not so much to like like Barack and Michelle, but like, are you also like concerned about what's really happening in Chicago beyond what you're hearing on CNN, right? Like, how are we how are we right. holding those complexities? Right, 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 right. So, in the most basic sense, you know, white supremacy it it is philosophical, it is material, it's ethical economic, scientific, religious, and political. And it, it manifests itself in multiple different ways in, in, in all of these categories. Like, just what are some examples? Just, just, just folks can just, it's not that many of us can just shout it out. What are some ways that white supremacy like, appears in these different ways? Like, like material or economic, because those kind of go hand in hand. What are some ways that white supremacy like, just manifests itself or presents itself? Well, economic, that would be, uh, that would definitely be the suppression of ability to get loans. Mm-hmm. Um, housing, I forget what that's called, they actually get names for that, mm-hmm. I forget what it's called. Um, of course, the, the lack of the dollar, yeah. power, um, mm-hmm. and then you've got the inner cities where there are literally next to no jobs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. What are some ways that we show up, see show up religiously? Mm-hmm. 
said the most segregated day is Sunday morning. We show we see it show up in our images. We see it show up in like blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Which and is like he was not because he was Arabic. <laughs> we see it show up uh, politically within our systems, right? We see it show up in the fact that um, if you look at what just happened with Barbara Lee, for example, right? We see like a black woman not being able to gain a position, and we're like, and I think it's great that Nancy Pelosi like gave her a position, but like, why wasn't a black woman able to be elected to that position? We see it in Florida when a, a man said, "Don't let, don't let us monkey this up," uh-huh. in regards to Andrew Gillum, and that didn't become something that made people not vote for him, and probably turned people out to the poll to vote for him. Oh yes, I know. Right. So these are the, like the ways that we see it show up politically that are really important for us to continue to dig into. Um, it works to maintain a dominant superior group um, identified as like white versus over non-white people. And I think it's really important, especially with the history of this country, to talk about that. Um, because like people came, people will say, we're a country of immigrants, which is problematic, but people will say that, right? My grandparents came here for a better life and they were oppressed. And that might have all been true, but right now, People aren't like, oh, you're Irish, you're Italian, you're this, you're that. People say you're white in order to maintain dominance over non-white people. So just like we say white supremacy is able to evolve, the definition of whiteness has been able to evolve to continue to oppress. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting uh, conversation. We had a discussion with a group of people, because I've noticed there are people who, were like, who, are, who are starting to challenge that. And part of the thing is I, I absolutely believe in self-determination in all of our abilities to define for ourselves like how we are identified. However, um, I've noticed that there is a growing like movement, it seems like almost among some progressives that I've, I've interacted with, to, to move away from being called white, which I totally respect and understand. However, that does not absolve any of us of dismantling this system that exists and the way in which white supremacy works and defines whiteness. Because unfortunately, when we look at the last 60, 70 years, whiteness, as you were saying, has evolved in a way because I remember there was an article in the 2016 election about how like uh, how Jews became white, right? Um, it was talking about how like at the time when Bernie Sanders was probably born, Jews probably were not have to were probably were not considered white, but over the course of his youth, you know, that, that evolution happened. And so we do see that there are some who are like included, even when we look at the census, right? The census, when you look under white actually identifies like North African and Arabs as falling under that European and white category, when you look at folks like Linda Sarsour and some of the other people, they're definitely not white. So it's really interesting the way in which those characterizations work. And I think that we all collectively need to work together, not just to challenge the way characterizations or mischaracterizations in some ways work, but how we're also still constantly going back to the habits, dismantling white supremacy even in those definitions. And the other thing I think that's important is like people are now weaponizing non-whiteness, right? I'm not racist because I am. And it's like an identity that people don't see, which is fair. Like we should all be able to show up as our full selves. We also have to also we also have to understand the privilege that we hold from the presumption of whiteness, right? So you might not like a white a person that people believe is white, you might not be that, but if you are holding the privilege of that, it's also upon you to dismantle. Right? Um, 
The other thing is, if you know, white supremacy works to maintain status, uh, maintain class inequality. Um, people are pitted against each other. This has happened since race, like race, was a construct that was invented on this, especially in this country, right? Like that it ha has worked so that poor people um, of any race do not join people of color to create like a larger um, movement, and we are they're able to separate us um, along racial lines. I mean, yes, yeah, so just thinking about the labor movement, right? Like one of the, the, the greatest things we saw was organizing, particularly even in the South, um, of, of, of sharecroppers, of low-wage workers and stuff, of black and brown folks who were back in the 20s and 30s. But we did see ways to kind of try and break that up. I mean, when you think about the labor movement, um, that has been actually a great equalizer, being able to, to, to organize folks across racial lines along that class strata has provided really strong movement spaces, but even within those conversations and spaces, we've had to deal with the, the, the issue of, of racial inequity as well. So race and class go hand in hand. And that is also because, like you said, white supremacy, I mean, even when we go back to slavery, most slave owners, the majority of white people were not slave owners, right? Uh, the majority of white people did not have like huge, you know, massive plantations. However, a system was created, a racial hierarchy, that even though the poorest of the poor were still allowed to maintain some idea of being better than those that were, were kept as chattel property. Um, austerity, neoliberalism, and globalization are things that we could talk about probably in two or three other sessions. But we want to remember they are powerful social forces and they do not exist separately from white supremacy. As a matter of fact, they exist because of white supremacy. And finally, white supremacy is embedded in our political system and it is bipartisan. Um, there, I mean, you know, when Barack Obama ran in 2007, 2008, the response from more seasoned white Democrats was he could be carrying our bags, actually that was Bill Clinton to be specific. Like, it is not just the Republicans that are the ones that perpetuate these systems, unfortunately, because we have never truly dug deep and dismantled these issues and institutions within our own so-called spaces or on our own side, um, there are still lingering and perpetuation. I mean, the fact that black women, even though we are the most loyal and largest group that consistently votes Democrats, you know, had never had a sit down with the head of the DNC until last year when that meeting was demanded, is telling. That's a part of that, that legacy, right? We expect people to show up and do the work, but there is no, you know, sharing of power and conversation at these other levels. And that's something that we have to constantly work to dismantle. And it's not to say that, you know, the Democrats are evil or anything, but it's the fact that this has to be a part of our own going strategy. Even the, the strategy of trying to, uh, we need to find a way to reclaim the white voters. I mean, when we look historically at the way the trend of white, white voters voting Democrat, it is not increasing since 1992 when, when, when Clinton ran his first run. In Georgia, for example, we have not gotten over 30% of the white votes since 1992. No matter how much you know, people have their different dreams and we're gonna reclaim that vote, it's not happening. For whatever reason, it's just not happening. I'm not saying that we aren't gonna have more progressive-minded white, <laughs> progressive white voters who will not also begin to come into the system and vote. That most definitely is something that we should organize and build around, but we can't do that separate from uh, principles of racial justice and equity as well. So we have to have that racial justice, that economic justice, like a human rights lens through all of our work that is definitely looking at how white supremacy is embedded in our political system. And I think it's important for us to do it within this space, because a lot of us are really, really comfortable confronting white supremacy in Republican spaces. 
We are really comfortable pointing to the other and saying, look how racist that is. We are not comfortable looking within progressive spaces and talking about white supremacy as a construct that happens, right? So there are things that happen that are not necessarily, and we'll get into like some of the ways it shows up, that are not necessarily done to be rude or to be mean. It's not as if people are at home with their white hood in the closet and they make a bunch of decisions. We yesterday canceled this session because all of the black sessions or the race-focused sessions were scheduled at the same time. It was a very hard decision. And it happens It happens each time we have one of these. It happened to us this summer at Netroots. At Netroots, we did the same exact thing. We literally canceled our session um, progressive while black and took a group of people into another session and there was a later session that day the same exact thing happened so we were able to get another room and re 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 reorganize the schedule ourselves because we wanted to make sure that no one had you know a sparse room you know that, that we actually had the presence of mind to give each other the respect to have those sessions happening and actually have the maximum efficiency and it worked and yesterday was a really good BYP had an amazing session yesterday and it, that wasn't intentional that wasn't that wasn't an intentional thing. It's not like the organizers they weren't they weren't doing it purposefully to hurt anyone, but it happened. And we have to be cognizant about the way in which this happens. I mean, there's also a black caucus space at the same exact time. How do you have a black caucus space at the same time that BYP 100, one of the leading black organizations in the country, are having an event? And that goes back to one of our ground rules of, uh, or not here anymore, of intent versus impact, right? Mm -hmm. Your intent might have just been, hey, we need to easily put this schedule together. Absolutely. This actually works better, but the impact and the way people felt it was you're pitting these black sessions against each other. And so if we don't confront that and really unpack that, mm -hmm. then we're not doing the work that we need to actually dismantle white supremacy. So we have one more, not slide, but your paper, because we don't have a slide. Um, <laughs> we're not going to talk about that. Um, and we're going to go over this and just want to talk about some characteristics of white supremacy. Um, this is just like a listing of things. I have it on my phone too, so I'm going to read that. Um, and we're going to go through a few of them. And then what we really want to do is like talk about, take the things that we talked about in small groups and discuss how we see white supremacy showing up in our spaces. So we kind of gave you a concrete example of, yo, these sessions were, were scheduled at the same time. Right? So we gave you that example, but I know that there are other examples that you see in your work every single day. There are, there are examples that we actually perpetuate ourselves. And so we really want to dig deep and unpack those things so that we can talk about how to move past them. So with, um, I mean, it, it is cultural, right? There are learned behaviors, right? There are things that we learn just, and they have accepted as the status quo and the standard because when whiteness is our default and that is how everything is shaped and that's the lens everything goes, comes through, that's just, that's the way our organizations are formed and that's the way we exist and do work. Um, even with, when we do things with data, I mean, there were conversations uh, over the past, this, this conference and other conferences about how even when we have data and stuff, that we don't have a certain cultural lens to look through to be able to interpret and analyze that data, we'll be able to come up with all sorts of things that actually are not related or grounded in anything related to the work of the people that we're trying to, to engage with. Um, so, you know, some of the things in terms of, you know, how it represents culturally are perfectionism, um, a sense of urgency. And this is not to say that perfectionism and quality is not important, um, but there is maybe an emphasis on things being exactly perfect versus understanding that sometimes, 
you know, through trial and error or the way in which we develop and organize, it's not going to always be perfectly quaffed. It's not always going to be, you know, there, there's some real great stuff that just happens in the way in which we build community and work with people. And we need to be able to embrace that and, and work through that, not dismiss it as less than, you know. Right. If you have an organizer who's maybe not someone who comes to that traditional, you know, pathway, they don't have the really polished resume the same exact way, but they're effective, right? They can actually com connect with community. They, they, they may not know all the fancy terms of art, like theory of change and things of that nature, but they understand how to move people in a very meaningful, powerful way. Mm -hmm. You talk about like sense of urgency. How many people have been in a space where people are like, oh, we didn't get that right because we were busy? I know other people have been in that space. <laughs> Don't be shy. Don't be shy. And a lot of, a lot of times that shows up as being non-inclusive to people of color. To like actually not doing the work to include people of color, marginalized communities within the strategy, and people will use the excuse we just didn't have time because we had a sense of urgency. And so that's one of the ways white supremacy shows up is the sense that I actually didn't have time to be inclusive. Next time we'll do it, we didn't have time to be inclusive this time. Defensiveness. I know it's hard for all of us. I'm, I get defensive myself. Um, I know it's a very difficult. It's a human trait. But when it when it's systemically embedded in conversations, right? When we try to raise, you know, how maybe this decision making, how maybe we haven't actually engaged these communities, and this is the feedback, this is the constructive criticism. Instead of accepting it in the spirit it's being given, it's met with defensiveness, right, and excuses or rationalizations about why we didn't do this, but whatever. Why is your literature only in English when you're trying to do outreach in Spanish-speaking communities? I'm not caping on you because I'm, I'm glad you're doing outreach in Spanish-speaking communities, but you should actually have your literature in Spanish too. Like, that type of thing, mm -hmm. right? The other thing, um, and we're gonna skip some of them, like the hoard, power hoarding. That is a really huge way it shows up. And it's not just about, I'm only gonna have white men in the room. Like, that's not just what it is. It's about, I'm gonna pick the women, I'm gonna pick the people of color, I'm gonna pick who I want in the room. And they're the people who back me up. So you really want like white supremacy like painted another color, right? And we see that show up in this work all the time. And, and some of it is, is ingrained and embedded. If you think about campaigns and how we hire field organizers, we ask, and I had a job description board, not gonna do that today, where it's like, you need to have these things. And, one, and a couple of things were like, you need to have a car, a cell phone, and a laptop. How many people have you systematically excluded because you asked people to have those things? And so I'm already power hoarding by only letting people who have access to those things in my room. And so those are the things that we have to be clear about, that we're not just picking and choosing people who are going to bring in diversity of their look, but they're actually going to bring in diversity of experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, fear of open conflict. Conflict is a very difficult thing to manage organizationally and just even in our spaces, right? But at times, conflict is actually a very necessary thing. If managed effectively, can help us move to a better place, right? I mean, we think about the chaos and conflict created the universe. I mean, right? So, so there's something good can be born from it if we can channel it and move it in the right direction. Because for the most part, in our movement spaces, all of us are very passionate and engaged people who really ultimately want the same thing, right? We're actually all here because we care, because we are committed to liberation, because we want this, this, this great goal to happen. We may not agree on how we get there, and that could be the source of conflict. But when we actually mediate and work through <laughs> how to deal with that, 
And don't do it in like siloed side conversations, but actually allow it to, to happen organically and in space. It could really actually lead to something else. Because the side conversations can create more conflict, right? When you're not talking to the same people about the same things at the same time, that, that itself can create more conflict and problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, I, I'll end with uh, the right to comfort. So people believe that they should always be comfortable. And similar to what you talk about with conflict, is that that's not true. If you actually do something foul, you're not supposed to be comfortable when you're confronted mm -hmm. about it. And we all do that. People have to confront me. Somebody confronted me yesterday. Like, it's fine to be confronted, and it's fine to not be comfortable, because that's the only way we can change. And so we do this thing where we protect people's right to comfort at the same rate, or even more, than we protect people's right to live. Mm -hmm. And that is like a way that white supremacy shows up, because it holds us from keeping people accountable. Absolutely. So for folks who came in a little bit later after we started, we were, we were just going, kind of going through just the basic premise of why we were having this conversation, how this applies to our work and our movement spaces, and the, we were going to shift to um, having small group breakout conversations to talk a little bit more specifically. So I had been streaming this part of it, portion of it. I'm going to end our stream now so that we can have the group conversation portion. Um, so I'll let you take over and I'll go in the stream. So a lot of folks came in, I wanted to just re-introduce um, our group agreements. I hate the word term ground rules, 